Hello, wherever you are, walking the dog, unloading the dishwasher, you may be in the bath, on the commute or just sprawled on the sofa. Welcome back to Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and this is the podcast where we talk to people in creative jobs about the pivotal moments in their career. Well, I hope your week has been good. This week, I survived the nearly new sale at school and we did sell lots and lots of stuff, although there are still four massive bags back in the house. If anyone wants to buy anything, let me know. So, who's on the podcast this week? Well, it is the brilliant Bob Harris. You know, I love doing these uh, interviews and sometimes I think, oh, I really like doing that one. This week, this week was one of them. Uh, So I popped over to Bob's house, which is gorgeous. It was a beautiful day. The birds were just singing so loudly. It was beautiful. Um, His sun loungers were kind of eyeing me up. Was I eyeing them up? I think they were eyeing me up on the lawn. But um, we headed to uh, under the apple tree where his studio is and talked about his wonderful career. So, Bob, thank you so much for uh, letting me talk to you in your gorgeous studio. I was just saying it's so lovely to have a studio where you can see outside in your back garden. It's gorgeous. Particularly on a day like today because it's sunny and warm. And uh, because the studio sits under an apple tree down here, hence the name of the, the sessions that we film, the Under the Apple Tree session. So here we are in the Under the Apple Tree studio. Well, it's brilliant. And <laughs> um, and I know you're really busy at the moment. You've got so much going on. Um, you're digitalizing your studio, which we were just talking about before we, we pressed record. Is that for you quite a, a lovely moment for you because you're sort of looking back on your career and uh, you're probably finding interviews and music that you'd forgotten about? Absolutely. That is exactly what's been happening. My my wife's nephew, Max, is staying with us. Um, uh, he goes to uni in September, so he had a sort of few months ahead of him. Um, and he and I were talking and he is a historian archivist. That's what he does. Um, he's got a, a an MA, I think, and all sorts of... This is his happy place. It's his paradise. He's sort of parachuted down into the studio. And um, I said to Max, there are a couple of boxes with loads of stuff in. I, I've been chucking stuff in BBC programme boxes for a few years without really... Uh, knowing that it's it's special, but just putting it somewhere that's safe. So Max has been going through everything, through tapes, reel-to-reels, DATs, mini-discs. Technology through the ages. Cassettes, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And uh, centralising them into uh, a proper archive that's notated. He's created a system. It's a several months long job. We're amazed at how much stuff there is. So, Does it make you quite emotional that uh, the stuff spanning decades and, and you think, I can't believe I did that and that interview and oh my goodness, there's that one, I'd forgotten that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. I mean, I, I work down here as well. So Max is at the, at the main desk and I'm just over the other side doing my programme building or whatever it is that I'm doing. So Max is doing a lot of the work as he's loading on headphones so he'll be listening to an interview from way back and then he'll say to me, do you, do you remember that interview you did with John Fogerty, let's say? Yeah. And I say, I do, actually. I remember the circumstance of it. I remember the studio in Nashville and him arriving really late and uh, <laughs> us getting into a great conversation about Ricky Nelson and stuff like that. But the detail, the minutiae, obviously, I'd forgotten. Mm. So... Max and I were listening through, I'm just using the John Fogerty as one example, but we were listening through this interview and I was absolutely amazed by how much I learned from revisiting this interview about John Fogerty. Because he and I 
came through rock and roll at approximately the same time. I mean, we're obviously opposite sides of the Atlantic, but our record collections were almost identical. So yeah. there was so much common ground, rock and roll common ground. And it was, <laughs> so that's the kind of thing, anyway, the kind of discovery. And these tapes and uh, reel to reels and everything, they go back to when I first started on Radio 1 in 1970. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think listening back, do sometimes you think, oh, I've, my, my style's changed? Or do you think essentially... You no, you can hear it. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how there has been an arc in that respect. Because when I first started, my mentor was John Peel. It was John who helped shepherd me into Radio One in the first place, and um, he he was the he was the, the sort of goal to aim at. Really, his style, his way, and in the very early days, you can hear huge influence of John in my broadcasting style mm. but then gradually obviously and then particularly when I went back to Radio 1 in the early 90s um, I, by that time I, I, I was getting to the point where I felt I kind of had my own voice uh, and now <laughs> but the process my son Miles who films the studios uh, films the uh, sessions here in the studio says that you that time in the 90s when I was on Radio 1 was like it was midway point between the way I sounded on Whistle Test and the way I'm sounding now. And and one of the obvious things that's happened is my voice has got gradually lower in, as, the, as the years have gone by. More whispering. But, yes. <laughs> so, so that's really interesting that you, you really can yourself, because it's quite difficult as a broadcaster sometimes to hear it yourself, but you've really noticed that, that you've changed. And you talked about John Peel and what a, a massive influence he was, and he, he got you in the door. So how did that actually happen? Because getting in the door of somewhere like Radio yeah. 1, it's, you must have felt incredibly lucky to, to have ah, that. Well, I still do to this day, you know. But um, no, what had happened was that I'd moved to London in 1966. I moved into an amazing creative house in Hampstead. Um, from nowhere, a friend of mine had started at Central School of Art. And I visited London to see him to discover that there was a room going in the house. So effectively, as you know... Um, one bedroom little sort of B&B kind of thing and four pounds a week it was and you thought I'm on to a winner here absolutely <laughs> and the house itself was really interesting because it was owned by a literary critic a writer called William Empson um, and he was away most of the time he was a lecturer at Sheffield University so his wife Hetta ran the house as a kind of student house and it was it was amazing uh, people there from Central School there were photographers people from uh, London School of Economics. It was a vibrant little enclave in what anyway at that time was a very exciting London. You know, it was, London really did seem like the place to be. And Well, because you come from Northampton, so yeah, yeah, there's a big change there, there isn't there? There is, and you know, <laughs> I was an only child, policeman's son. This new culture was just, it was like a firework display, you know. <laughs> so, um, uh, but I was in London basically on my own finding my way and I was spending a lot of time with the radio and of course I discovered pirate radio uh, Radio Caroline but the station for me really was Radio London mm. and um, of course this thing late in the evening I suddenly discovered this show it started at midnight called The Perfume Garden and it was John with well I mean he'd bought stacks of albums back from the States with him where he'd been living for a while and was playing them on air. So the, the, these were really, you know, you'd never heard 
music like quite like this before quicksilver messenger service you know country joe and the fish steve miller band um it was i was absolutely completely i thought if because i i'd gone to london for the reason of wanting to break into the music industry mm. and ideally wanting to be on the radio but how you know in those days it was it was the home service and the light program maybe radio luxembourg but the pirates came in and just changed everything mm. Mm. so uh so um, I started getting in touch with all the little magazines and newspapers and new publications that were burgeoning in London that time. Uh, and to cut a long story short, I met Tony Elliott, who was the editor of um, University of Kiel magazine unit, who commissioned me to write a piece about a mixed media group called the Exploding Galaxy, who were putting, they were headed by a kinetic, Japanese kinetic sculptor, a guy called David Madala. Um, and they had a commune in Islington, which I moved into. And I wrote this piece and Tony really liked it. And he said, right, you know, we'd love another piece for unit. What, what would you like to do? And I said, I would really like to meet John Peel. So Tony organized it. And I found myself at the end of 1967 going over to John's then flat in Fulham. Were you terrified? Because he's like a hero to you. He was absolutely... I. I Yes, I was. I was nervous as hell. <laughs> and um, but you're obviously quite driven because you you decided you'd gone to London. This is what you wanted to do. Yep. This was your goal. Yes. And you were meeting him. Yes. And uh, and Mark Bolan. Mm. Mark was there on, on the same day because John wouldn't do anything unless Mark was around because he was so vigorously helping to promote Tyrannosaurus Rex. So I met both of them. Became friends together with both of them and separately with both of them. Mark and I in particular used to hang out a lot. Mm. He and his wife June and my then wife Sue became really close friends. And um, But meanwhile, John is encouraging me. He's talking about me. He had a couple of newspaper columns and began to write about me. Then Tony Elias and I co-founded Time Out magazine. That's an interesting, because you just you say you just co-founded it. But, you know, you've got to have an idea and you've got to have, it's it's got to have backing and it's yeah. got to, you've got to have a passion. So that's quite a big step as well, isn't it? Just, you know, just co-founded a magazine. Well, I can be casual like that because it was Tony's idea completely. <laughs> I mean, he was a driving force behind it. And uh, I just happened to be the guy in London that he'd been working with before sort of thing. But having said that, it was a big deal. Obviously, it was a huge deal for us. So it was a, a what's on magazine for the counterculture and similarly at that point there wasn't one mm. you know there was where to go in London and what's on in London and both would stayed beyond belief and none of them listed anywhere that we wanted to go it's a brilliant idea yeah, it's like so, all these new tech ideas it's just having that idea isn't yeah. it yeah so Tony got a 70 pound loan from his aunt to fund the first print run five five thousand copies which we sold to the crowd at the Sunbury Jazz Festival in the summer of 68 and that funded a second edition which then funded a third edition and this was the key moment because I'd met and become friends with a really brilliant uh, artist called Alan Aldridge who was very fashionable at that moment you remember the Bieber look and, and mm. uh, the Art Nouveau it was a sort of mix of Art Nouveau and, and psychedelia, really. Yellow Submarine, Beatles' Yellow Submarine probably pins it most accurately. But Alan was uh, was kind of famous at that moment, and um, 
he and I became friends and he offered to do the design for the cover for the third edition of Time Out. And that's the one that launched us really and got all the press. And we had people, Eric Clapton was very keen to invest in all this sort of stuff. So that was the one that really got us going. And, and throughout all of this, it seems to, to me that it's all to do with people that you've met and having great friends who wanted to do similar things to mm. you. Mm. Is it, are you sort of one of these people that you a real collaborator? You you feel more comfortable when you're surrounded with lots of other creative people because it's it's good, isn't it, to be part of a it team? It is. I mean, I've I've been very fortunate to. So you know, with John, for example, um, John introduced me to a producer at Radio One called Jeff Griffin. Um, Jeff was producing Top Gear and the In Concert program with John, mm. and Jeff and I did a pilot together. Uh, which Jeff then submitted to the BBC. And it took 10 months before they finally came back and said, John's going to be taking a, a holiday. Um, we'd like you to sit, or Jeff said, we'd like you to sit in on the Wednesday Sounds of the 70s programme. Because what was happening was that the concert show would go out on Sunday and then be repeated on the Wednesday. So the idea was that Jeff was going to pick sort of the best of the concerts right. for Sunday but he didn't want to repeat a repeat so and anyway now he's sort of got got me to to test run um so the BBC gave me those four programs sitting in for John while he was away and, and that 10 month wait know, it was <laughs> you were busy with I, time out I suppose well no time out I I was only with time out for about a year okay. I did a lot of freelance writing but and of course kind of half anticipating perhaps the idea of going on to radio in some way I started doing a lot of DJing around London so I'd see the marquee I was I got a couple of residences here and there to kind of learn how to do this because <laughs> um, you've got this big idea but you've got to learn it you've got to learn yeah it I got it, yes absolutely <laughs> so I had a, a, a moment of, of good fortune in the sense that David Simons who's doing the Monday Sounds of the 70s resigned from the BBC only about six weeks after I'd done that fill-in for John. So the BBC asked me to go in and s sort of take over that show on a six-week contract to start with. And then the, the, over the next few months, the contract extended to 13 weeks. <laughs> it's just slowly <laughs> eking your way in, isn't yes. it? It's saying, oh, that person's going on another holiday. And, and it's, it's getting that initial foot in the door and just staying there but you've got to be good to stay there but you've also it's all to do with personality isn't it and getting on with yeah. people I think also in my case I, I I was probably one of the first DJs to come into Radio 1 in particular uh, that wasn't from the Pirates because that whole generation of the Tony Blackburns Johnny Walkers John Peels of this world they Kenny Everett they all came from the Pirates um, uh, whereas I hadn't been on Luxembourg I hadn't been on radio before mm. so the BBC could as it were, embrace me and promote me as as their new voice, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah, and now over fifty—is it fifty years mm, later? Pretty nearly. You must be in the top three of voices on the BBC that have been there, sort of for such a long time. I was trying to what, work out what, the longevity. Yeah, longevity lead, award. Lead table. Yes. Is, is there a lead table somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking that the other day actually. Ken Bruce has been around for a long time as yes. well, you know, and uh, um, but and Johnny. Obviously, Johnny Walker and I have, are pretty much contemporaries of each yeah. other. So Top two. <laughs> yeah, Paul Gambaccini actually started in 73. So there are still, but you're right, I'm almost the senior one of the senior. <laughs> I, mean, I remember talking to 
Uh, Cynthia Lennon was a very, very close friend of mine. And, um, you know, obviously she was a little bit older than me, but we're, we're getting older together, as it were. And she said, what, what do you think we should call ourselves? And how about the elders? <laughs> that's a good, oh, that's great. That's, we are the elders. <laughs> and what do you think is the key to being an elder? Because you you've seen so many people, I'm sure, come and go and, and and have careers but sort of but but staying there I mean you've found that you know country music is is, is a massive yes, part of what you do yeah. do you think having a, a specialism is is quite a key thing that's I think that's a very good point yes I I, I think that puts it very well I think also it's very simple and and you know you just can't guarantee this but obviously enthusiasm is the key you've got to love it or at least I do. I couldn't do this if I didn't love it because it's, and I've always just loved being in this situation. I feel that it's an absolute honor to be in a place where I can discover new music and then expose that music to an audience who might appreciate it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like saying artist meet audience, <laughs> audience meet artist, and I can then step back and let that relationship grow. And to be able to do that every week and, you know, and play really also be given the freedom to play what I think is right for a program at any given time. Mm -hmm. That is also massively important, I mm -hmm. think. So, yeah, I mean, I just think and I people say you can't. But it's true. I, I mean, I feel I'm blessed, really. I'm blessed to be able to go to Nashville. Uh, to ha you know to have my health and my my vigor and my enthusiasm and that drive being able to do these programs and go to Nashville and meet all these musicians and have bands arriving in our studio here bringing all their new energy with them in your you know, back so. garden yeah literally it's fantastic and, and I, I, was, I was trying to work out when listening to you like you say introducing the audience to something new because some people might do that say right this is new from whoever and people sort of listen, but there's something about how you deliver the, uh, right, you've got to listen to this because this is amazing. And, yes. and I'm trying to work out what it is. I think it's the passion, isn't it? And the sort of smile in the voice and, and the love of it. I don't know if you can put your finger well, on it. Well, it, it, when I, that's that's the thing that I, I feel. It's like going back to um, when I first started buying records in the 50s. I used to invite friends of mine round. We had, my parents had a little cellar uh, in Ardington Road in Northampton where we used to live. And um, I used to invite friends over to, I had a record player down there and I'd say, bring your new singles over and let's do like a record hop. And I'd be getting the new Buddy Holly single or whatever, you know, John Lever, there was a great record shop called John Lever in Gold Street in Northampton. It was the one place they got records in early or you could get imports or whatever and I used to stand and wait for the 45's delivery van to arrive and get get those records home and then sit down and play my friends the new Duane Eddy record or the new Everly Brothers or whatever it was and you know to see the expressions on their faces as they were discovering this new music was just it was a joy to do it mm. and so what I'm doing now is only really a kind of bigger version of that. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. You know? it, it's, it's spreading the love mm. of the music, isn't mm. it? Mm. So, so we talked about getting into Radio 1 and, and John Peel was, was massively influential in that and, and staying there. But you, you did hop around quite a lot, didn't you? You've done a lot of um, different shows on, on different stations. Uh, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was nomadic for a while, yeah. Because, um, well... The, the, Sounds of the 70s came to an end on Radio 1. I think it was 
end of 73, sometime into early 74, somewhere around then, uh, there was an um, uh, executive producer called Derek Chinnery, who became controller, I think I'm right in that chronology. But anyway, he hated progressive music and <laughs> rock and all that kind of stuff. Because there's and, a lot of luck who's in charge uh, and what totally. you're doing, isn't there? Uh, this is the thing that I've learned through the years with, with radio. You're, you're kind of as secure as your controller is happy with you or not. Uh, and it, that can change from con controller to controller. There's no guarantee whatsoever that, um, you know, the next person in is going to think you're okay. And if they don't, you've got a serious problem if the styles totally change. So, you know, I've, I've reckoned, anyway, so 74, I'm not on Radio 1 anymore, but not that at that particular moment, it bothered me that much because I was so busy with Whistle Test. Mm. Whistle Test had now taken over my life. I did a short stint on Radio Luxembourg. And then in the late 70s, I, I, there was a guy called uh, Neil French Blake who ran a very eccentric little radio station. This is sort of pre-ILR and, and pre-all the restrictions that nowadays apply. In those days, you could literally, if you had the resources you could kind of set yourself up and have your own radio station it's it kind like of podcasting yeah it is that's yeah. a very good way of putting it and and that's what neil did and um i'd gone down there to do an interview and he he caught me as i was leaving i mean bearing in mind steve wright was there at that moment mike reed in fact they were doing the reed and wright show together <laughs> neil could pick talent he really could um and i was just leaving and he he caught me up he said i'd like to talk to you <laughs> Uh, he always used to have a pair of glasses perched on the end of his nose. <laughs> and he, he, he always had a white paper cup in his hand that looked like water, but everybody knew it was gin. Uh, and a cigarette in his, in his mouth, right close to his mouth. And he used to say to Steve, if, if Steve is listening to this, he used to say to Steve Wright, you're going right to the very top. <laughs> and he was right, of course. And so he said, I want you to come down and do the sports show on Saturday afternoon. I said, he said, um, I don't care about whistle test or anything. I want, just want to know what's good coming out of the speakers. And uh, I thought, oh, OK. You know, I went down and did the Saturday afternoon sports show. Absolutely loved it. And he, he caught me at the end of the show just as I was leaving. Steve had arrived. I, Steve Wright had come in with a big box of tapes and cassettes. And yeah, he was, Steve was doing the Radio 210 Club. And with all the sound effects and everything that he brought into the studio, you would think that he was somewhere really sort of exciting. You've got characters. And I was driving home listening to him thinking, this this man is a genius. Uh, he was the best I'd heard since Kenny Everett, Steve. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve and I obviously were still such good friends, you know. Um, it was uh, a perfect training ground there, this yeah. place. And this guy was, was giving you a chance to, yeah, to so, show your talents. Yeah, so Neil, Neil said, I'd like you to come. I, he made me eventually head a um, music and presentation at 210. And I, I mean, now looking back at it, I worked my socks off there. I don't know how I let myself get into it. <laughs> I was doing a Friday night show. This is true. When you think, what? I was doing a Friday night show from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Hmm. Um, a Saturday lunchtime show, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. That's not even lunchtime. That's more like breakfast if you've been to bed at 1. A Saturday evening show, <laughs> 9 till 1. Sunday lunchtime, and then an oldies show on Sunday night. Did you just stay there? 
I more or less did. I stayed just around the corner. There was a friend of mine at the time who had a house nearby and I used to stay there. But now I think... And then, you know, at the end of this kind of crazy weekend, I'd drive back up to London and do whistle test on the Tuesday. And fall asleep. No wonder I look so shattered. <laughs> no wonder your voice was getting lower and lower. <laughs> but you see, it's because you were so passionate and you were desperate to get in to do more, I suppose. And, you know, when you're climbing up the ladder you just do it don't you you look back and you think why why yeah. did I do it although I wasn't sort of thinking there wasn't an ambition mm. uh driving me I was, it was more because I mean I was on whistle test in that way I'd, I'd reached that particular point of success mm. so it wasn't necessarily you didn't need to do it I, I didn't actually I didn't so I think how persuasive was Neil to get me to do what it was it 20 hours or something five fours or 20 hours of broadcasting in about 62 hours how did I get myself talked into Call that it the Bob Harris weekend <laughs> <laughs> so you did it as you say you're quite nomadic yeah and, so uh, then okay so uh two and oh came to an end and I moved down to Oxfordshire and then Ted Gorton who was the program controller station controller at Radio Oxford approached me to say would you like to do the drive time show uh taking over from Timmy Mallet well there's a there's a culture shock (laughs) if ever there was one you know Timmy Mallet one day and Bob Harris the next blimey what just happened people Uh, think they're tuning to a different radio station (laughs) he was great too again you know Timmy was a bit like um Steve you know so inventive Mm. on air and everything but the they wanted a different tone well the yeah I mean I guess I loved it I instantly totally loved it and this was the time when uh Radio Oxford would would go in and out from the networks so it was woman's hour uh until three o'clock when I took over and I was on three till six. And then I handed over to John Dunn on Radio 2 because right. he was doing the, the drive time show on Radio 2. Ted Gorton encouraged me to just push the boundaries out on that show. And I totally loved it. I really did. You know, lots of guests. So, so close contact with, obviously, the, the audience and people around you. Uh, David Freeman was on the station at the time. And in fact, the, the um, uh, presenters, it was a stellar list. And I remember us being number two in the... BBC local radio ratings yeah yeah yeah. it was really successful and I absolutely loved it and then Ted Gorton went to BBC Breakfast he was one of the people that launched BBC Breakfast and a new controller John Bright came in and took one look at what David and I were doing and that was it (laughs) why is Bob Harris playing the American charts on Thursday afternoon (laughs) was was his first question I think (laughs) and at that point you thought Maybe uh, I should be looking for another job. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you kind of know. So then uh, G- GWR, <laughs> Ralph Bernard started GWR in Swindon mm. and sort of caught me up in his net having been ejected from Radio Oxford. Um, but it all seems, one thing sort of seems to lead did. to another. You don't, haven't had many periods of nothing, have you? No. You think, have you had any periods of no, nothing? No, but that particular period was difficult, to be honest, though, Ali, that time in the mid-80s. Mm. Because um, if if you wanted the definition of uncool at the time, you know, in 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 it was me <laughs> in the eighties, you know, and um, you weren't wearing the fluorescent leg warmers at the time, no, and, and, the, and the bat I, wing jumpers. I didn't have enough hair to have big hair anymore. So do you know what I mean? It was just and the, the ex whistle test, yeah, completely. You needed to speak back in the seventies or move into the nineties. Well, what happened was so okay, so on. National BBC, if you like, the very last whistle test I did 
was um, New Year's Eve 1979 going into 1980, Blondie at the Apollo in Glasgow. And the first, uh, the next national programme of my own that I did started on the 6th of April 1990 on Radio 1. Mm. So effectively, as far as the, the sort of wider general public is concerned, the I did not exist in the 80s. <laughs> But I was, but I was, but so I had to keep myself going. So I was hopping around here, there, and everywhere. Mm. I did Radio Broadland in Norwich. Uh, I did a radio station in Peterborough. I did Swindon and Bristol, and I was doing BFBS in London. Cocking out the miles. Absolutely, totally. Yeah. And but it was in a sort of desperate attempt to not have to get off the roundabout. Mm, mm. It, it was really. I mean, I wasn't earning a lot of money, and uh, it was a very, very testing time professionally. But then something really quite extraordinary happened and that was that okay one of my big heroes in the 70s and 80s was roger scott i thought roger was the consummate dj his music taste you know he's into springsteen and the beach boys and he taught me that you don't have to go completely off left field onto a limb out there somewhere to fill your program with great, great music. You know, what he was doing was he was, you know, if it was Stevie Wonder, let's say, he would go deep into a Stevie Wonder album and come up with, you know, one, one of the tracks that nobody else was playing, mm. but that was great. Mm. And he'd maybe segue that with a Marvin Gaye or go from there to Joni Mitchell or, you know, it was quality music and it, his programs, he also, you could tell he knew the music, he lived the music, mm. you know. So anyway, I was a massive fan and I was very, um, really sort of sad to hear that towards the end of the 80s, he, he got cancer. Mm. Uh, and Johnny Beerling, who was the Radio 1 controller at the time, took Roger down to, he had a little house in southeast Spain, and he took Roger down there for Roger to have a sort of last holiday, and, and but also to record interviews and things with Roger that Johnny then created a program called Radio Radio which was effectively the story of Roger's career mm. uh, I didn't know any of this obviously but I'm doing my BFBS program my weekly show and there's a transmitter obviously in Gibraltar it was being transmitted to BFBS Gibraltar but you could pick it up in southeastern Spain and Johnny down there tuned in and heard my show and Literally about four days later, I got a call uh, asking me to pop in and see Stuart Grundy at, at Radio 1 because Johnny said, I just want you back on the network. And in his head, he now has got me placed as the replacement for Roger. And, and, and Roger how, passed away. And how ironic almost that he was somebody that you were such a, a massive Absolutely. fan of. And, and it's all about the music, isn't it? It is. Well, also, Roger had been working with Phil Swern or as Tony Blackburn calls him, you know, Phil the Collector Swan. Because <laughs> uh, Phil's got, got one of the greatest record collections in the world. Yours is pretty impressive here. Say. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm just looking at all this music. But it, yeah, his is so, off the scale. Yes. And, you know, Phil also has great real sort of strength pools of music that he absolutely knows backwards and doo-wop, early rock and roll, you know, if you like characterized by Dion and the Belmonts, let's say, that era of music in the late 50s, there's nobody better. 
uh, as a combination probably than me and Phil or, or Phil and Roger. So I could inherit this show, the, Saturday, uh, the Sunday evening show that Roger was doing and not feel I wanted to make any adjustment to it at all. You know, Phil and I just rolled it. Uh, my taste was so similar to Roger's and it, it worked. And then from there, th literally three months later, uh, Johnny offered me the late night show and then as things happened with the Gulf War and everything and Radio 1 started going 24 hours, they offered me what I called the midnight to morning show. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, yeah, so... And, and, and did you feel, you, you felt comfortable because you were playing what you wanted and you were doing, it was yeah. all about the music, but did yes. you feel less comfortable because maybe you were now one of the more mature members of staff at Radio 1? I didn't, but, but Radio 1 itself was beginning to feel uncomfortable about the idea of having, you know, an on-air staff of dinosaurs as, as they <laughs> I said more mature you said dinosaurs <laughs> that's what they said <laughs> yeah I mean not well not Radio 1 didn't necessarily say that but there was a growing kind of movement to, to say well people like David Lee Travis Simon Bates um you know these are Bob Harris let's say you know <laughs> John Peel these are these are guys in their 40s or 50s what do they know mm. about having close contact with a, a teenage audience but so on the other hand you could argue that music is music and it doesn't matter how old you are you can enjoy any type of music whatever your age true but I mean there was a cull there was a you know it's a sort of slice right through the center of everything that Radio 1 was and you know would redesign it basically mm. so Johnny Beerling left uh, Ma uh, Matthew Bannister came in uh, and it was brutal there's there's no other way of where to describe it I mean I remember vividly Matthew asking me in to uh, here we go a meeting uh, oh my god <laughs> I, mean, I found myself in this otherwise completely empty room in the middle of broadcasting house strip light in the you know two desks uh, rather two chairs and a desk so there's Matthew sitting behind the desk and there's me sort of joining him and he sat down and he said uh, I've been giving a lot of consideration to this um, you'll be doing your last program in what was the day three weeks time so I said, because uh, I was doing 16 hours a week on Radio 1 at the time, in fact, I was doing more hours on Radio 1 at that moment than anybody else. So I said, right, wait, 16 hours, what, to nothing? Because I thought, I knew this something like this was coming, but I thought he'll find a little niche for me somewhere at the weekend. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah. Uh, And he went, yeah, what we want to do is we want to broaden the base of the music on, on the show. And I went, ah, you haven't listened to my programme. He just looked at me like this. I said, you have not listened to my program. I would have taken almost anything else mm -hmm. you'd said to me as a reason mm -hmm. for this. But broadening the base of the music, it couldn't be broader. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, anyway. He so did. You so, must have felt very disappointed and, and, and shocked almost because you weren't expecting that total end of. No, I wasn't. But, okay, so then about a week, 10 days go by. Uh, and I get a call from Matthew and he said, uh, you know, you really have to give a massive uh, kudos to, to this, you know. So he phoned me up and said, I've been listening to your show. He said, I, you know, you were right. I didn't really know your program, but I've listened now. And he said, you're right. He said, it's it's terrific. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks. But well, now you tell me, you know. <laughs> So he said, well, let's get together and, and, and have a drink. And uh, so we chatted and, and actually then he reopened, he pushed the door to Radio 1 back ajar slightly for me. Mm. And he also said, um, you know, 
I'm going to support you. I sh you should be across on Radio 2. A lot of you guys should be across on Radio 2. Francis Lyne was the, the controller at Radio 2 at the time. And Matthew said, I'm going to have a word with her and talk to her on your behalf if, if you'd like me to do that. I said, I would love you to do that. So then began my friendship with Matthew Bannister, which exists to this day. But that was, it must have been a moment for you when, because you could have just taken that statement and just said, OK, tail between my legs, I'm going. But you kind of argued your case a little bit. I did, yeah. yeah. I, w I wouldn't have, you know, if he said, listen, Bob, you're 46, you're, you're getting out of touch, I would have gone, oh, all right, then, you know, <laughs> or whatever it was. But the but the breadth of the music was mm. the one thing that, that, that was wrong. Mm. It, so it wasn't even I was arguing my case. I was just saying, Matthew, you've not listened to the show. You know, you would know that, that you're wrong if you'd listened to the show. So that's how we left it. And for him to come back to me, and as I say, now he's, I don't know whether you've heard it, but yeah. he's doing this fabulous podcast, Folk on Foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So we've become, we've become really good friends. <laughs> and it's all about, again, with him, he's, he's, he's dealing with the music, isn't he? Yes, so he is. Maybe you inspired him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that led to the door opening slowly a bit more at Radio 1 and also starting to open at Radio 2. And, in, and, in between and the, that, though, was probably one of the most enjoyable broadcasting moments of my entire career and that was at GLR in London uh, I, I obviously I wasn't doing Radio 1 anymore thankfully they paid up my contract which gave me a bit of leeway that for once I could stop and have a holiday and so in the middle of this moment where I'm sort of put everything on pause while I sort of rethink things I got a call from GLR um, saying come in and do some shows for us and it was incredible because they absolutely the, the people on air there at that time, people like Chris Evans, Johnny Walker, Gary Crowley, uh, the the incredible Charlie Geller, you know, one of the best broadcasters ever. I parachuted down into that environment to discover that everybody there literally encouraged me to push the boundaries out as far as I wanted to. I could do whatever I wanted to with that show. And uh, you love that for three you. nights a week, yeah. yeah live bands in it was a bit like being here under the apple tree in our studio here with an open four hours ahead of you to see whatever it was that you wanted to fill it with and it was brilliant it was so brilliant but then um i got a call from radio two to... i love in the fact you keep getting calls you don't yeah. seem to be having to contact people they are always contacting you yes well i'd got a hint obviously glr is broadcast in london so the radio two producers were hearing my show often when they were driving home or whatever and it just it just became a bit of a buzz and I got a call from um, Jim Moyer who'd just taken over as controller of Radio 2 and said uh, would I like to come in and with Phil Swern and do a week around Christmas 96 I mean Thank my lucky stars, you know. <laughs> sort of, the door uh, hallelujah. <laughs> uh, just we've got to make this good now. So, did you feel because you've been doing it for a long time? But did you feel nervous? Uh, well, actually, I've never actually felt nervous. Nervous on the radio. Oh. I, I I felt nervous quite often on television, but not in on the radio. I just feel it's. I feel just so comfortable in a radio studio. So, but this was quite big. It was massive. It was. This was now the biggest show I've probably ever done. It was. It was my. 
uh, qualification for the Champions League. Do you know what I mean? It was, this was massive. You didn't want to miss the penalty, did you? No, no. you did not. <laughs> so, uh, um, But you weren't too nervous and you, you managed no, to Phil, get those shows away. I remember Phil sitting across the desk from me and we started the first show and it went well and we were very, very careful about the music, not to frighten the horses too much and you know, all of this. And it comes to 12 o'clock and I hand, hand over to the news, the news jingle finishes and I look across at Phil and about two seconds later, literally, the white light phone goes in the studio and I pick the phone up and it's Jim Moyer and he said, Bob, really enjoyed the show. You must pop in next week to talk about your future. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> you know, I didn't feel and I were just absolutely punching the air and it dancing was around the dancing studio. around the Oh, it was just a, because then I knew that you know, Radio 2 obviously then was going to be the future and that was where I wanted to be. And what so a moment, we, yeah, 12 o'clock. Incredible moment, I'll never forget it, you know. Yeah. And Jim was so, I didn't know that, because years before Jim had been the um, controller of BBC Light Entertainment and he'd been watching my career on Whistle Test from afar and I didn't know, but he'd be, he, was a, he was a fan. Oh. So when he when he took over Radio Two, the first three calls he made were to myself, Alan Freeman, and Steve Wright. We were the first three, and Johnny Walker pretty close behind. Mm -hmm. So there was his first sort of stamp of the, you know, we started at the weekends and and it built from there. Wow, mm. and and from there the country music show came in as well. Well, again, that was. Um, I got a call from... It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> really annoying. <laughs> from Dave Shannon, who was a producer at Pebble Mill, as was then, saying that he and Leslie Douglas, who was Jim's deputy controller, had been talking. And Leslie, Leslie had been a fan of my overnight show on Ray J1. And she'd noticed she was a country music fan. And so she'd been aware of the fact that on that show, I was doing sessions with people like... Mary Chapin Carpenter, Steve Earle, Sean Colvin. Um, and she wanted to pep up the country show on and bring it into the sort of approaching 21st century. Mm. So she just had this instinctive idea that maybe it might be good to give me a bash at it. So Dave Shannon phoned me up and explained all this. And I, to start with, I wasn't sure. So he said, because, I mean, I didn't know whether I... I was that country guy yeah. and whether country people would accept me coming across from rock and whether, and it, you know, also whether I had the depth of knowledge, you know, were all the questions I was asking myself. Well, it's such a specialist thing, isn't yeah. it? You, you feel a bit unnerved. It's something that you've gone out your comfort, comfort zone. Yes. So Dave said, the answer to this is before you make up your mind, I'm going to take you to Nashville because then you can immerse yourself in, uh, I mean, it's, it's, literally one of the best things that's happened to me in my life because for the moment I, I um, touched down in Nashville and started meeting people and got the vibe of the place I realized this was where I'd always always wanted to be isn't that interesting that yeah. they sort of knew before you knew in a funny in way in a way yes that you know Americana was just coming in as well in a big way so the poster record when I got to America for the first time was Car Wheels on a Gravel Road by Lucinda Williams. I mean, if ever a record hits dead centre of the stuff I like, that's it. <laughs> so, I, of course, Dave had known this anyway, but now I began to realise that it and me were the perfect combination. And then, you know, Dave was saying, because I was saying, well, I was never into that, you know, 
the 60s in particular with Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and stuff, I was never really into that music. He said, yeah, but you love the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly and Duane Eddy and, and um, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Ricky Nelson. All these people were rooted in, in mm. country. Mm. One of my favourite records of the mid-1960s, Blonde on Blonde, recorded in Nashville. You know, Then you've got Bob Dylan with um, Johnny Cash, uh, Nashville Skyline and then you've got the the country rock bands Graham Parsons was the such an important figure for the birds Flying Burrito Brothers and then you go across into the 70s and the Eagles and Poco and Pure Prairie League and Emmylou Harris and people like this now we were supporting all those people on the old great whistle test so I was almost into country music without knowing I was into country music. Yeah, yeah. But once I got out there and saw the songwriting community and uh, I just absolutely fell in love with the place and that that's how we are now. And don't you think when you love something, even if you're not sure you've got all the knowledge, you pick it up so quickly because you're loving it and you want to know more. Absolutely. And it's just a complete passion project, yeah. isn't it? And we've, we've made such incredible friends there, you know, that have also guided me into amazing experiences and situations i mean beth nielsen chapman is one of the most amazing people i've ever met and she has become such a friend and she became almost like my nashville laminate introducing me to everyone and taking me to the backstage at the cma awards you know all the all the stuff and then gradually of course you begin yourself to like really i suppose brad paisley is a very good example of somebody whose career was really just getting going as i arrived in nashville um, and to watch Brad become a really big star mm. uh, and to, t in a way, help support him on that journey by playing his music and getting to know him and becoming friends with him. Uh, and that's what's happened with so many of the country stars. Roseanne Cash, you know, her husband, John Leventhal. Uh, we're friends. Um, and that can... must give you such a thrill, your friends, but also you've really helped them get to a wider yeah, audience that yeah. must be so satisfying it's, it's amazing it, again it goes right back to what we were saying right at the beginning it's that thing of uh, here I am I'm the guy who's saying audience here's this amazing artist artist here's your audience and step back and that's what it is let it happen mm. and, and and from that you, you you've got this the whole broadcasting company that you've got here in the back garden mm -hmm. and all the sessions and it's a bit of a family affair I was going to ask you do you enjoy sort of being your own boss and and, and running your own company but are you the boss because you run it with your family uh, no I'm not the boss <laughs> Trudy is the boss uh yeah no unhesitatingly I I can say that um and it is, it's not as easy as one would think it might be. Mm. It's it's actually quite tough to run one's own company, even a production company that, you know, we've got, there's several different sort of branches to it, uh, to the Apple Tree. Um, uh, under the Apple Tree Sessions is a contained, self-contained unit. And that really, my son Miles curates these sessions here. But we've just completed a tour with Live Nation, um, with Wildwood Kin and, and Ferris and Sylvester and Loud Mountains in Oxford, who were brilliant. Um, then we've got our Back to TV series, which hasn't gone out on television yet, uh, that we're in the last sort of moments of negotiating about going out on BBC. Uh, there's WBBC itself, the, the, the mothership, which, for example... Uh, helps Chris Difford organise songwriting retreats in 
uh, Glastonbury and they're off to Lafayette next week for a songwriting retreat there as well. So it's very, very hard work on, on the admin mm. side of things. And uh, despite now that we've been established for maybe nine or 10 years, we do go through moments like every company does where the work is not as plentiful as mm. at other times. And then you sort of struggle for a moment and then bash, you're, you're back out into the sunlight again. So it can be quite, actually quite stressful. Yeah. And um, yeah, but it's so much worth it because we are... We're a hub for people, you know. We we really are a, a place where, I mean, people see us as a hub as well. We're an interconnecting point for lots of different strands of things that go on around us. Mm. So it's you know it's incredibly, it can be stressful and uh, and difficult sometimes, but it's incredibly rewarding. Particularly when you hear some live music just played in here. I yeah. Guess. It's Absolutely amazing. Absolutely gorgeous. And yeah. and the, the love of country music has led to this film, which probably when you were when you went to London from, from Northampton and you wanted to get on the radio and had all these creative people around you, you probably never thought you were going to be in a film or maybe it was part of the plan. No, it never was. I mean, but it's just... And again, Nicole Taylor, who, who is the, the screenwriter, um, had an idea, had this idea in her mind for Wild Rose probably about 12 or 13 years ago. She'd heard Mary Chapin Carpenter, that was the contact point, and she loved Mary Chapin's music. And then she discovered that, well, I mean, there is a really good friend of mine, that I, I was playing Mary Chapin on the radio, she was coming in for sessions, etc., etc. So she began to build the idea of the story um, around the experiences, obviously, of, of her own with country music, but that my show had been important in terms of part of that process that led her to where we are now. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to write that in uh, and give Rose Lynn Harlan, who's the character that Jesse Buckley plays, um, that I'm sort of, an, I don't want to give away any spoilers really, uh, <laughs> but that I'm Careful. an important part of where she wants to go. Mm. Let's put it that way. And so, yeah, and so I find myself with Mark Hagen, my producer, up in Scotland, doing some filming in Glasgow with and meeting Julie Walters and having my own trailer and thinking... Did, oh, did it feel <laughs> weird or did you think, you know what, I could get used to this? Oh, way. I said to Trudy when I got back, I said, I could do this. <laughs> I really could. It's going to be like Star Wars. You're going to have like a prequel. Yes. And, uh, you know, loads in the series. There'll be more maybe. This could be the start of something new. I would, gosh, I mean, I did actually really love the whole filming process. Yeah. It was exciting and it was... It was terrific. I loved it. And Jessie, oh my God, what a talent she is. I've, the reviews have been sensational. They have. So it's it's really exciting, isn't it? And Jessie and I were talking on set because she said that she would love to do some recording, partly as Jessie, but also as Rose Lynn Harlan. How, anyway, she was saying that we're thinking about taking a crew out to Nashville. And I said, you should go to see Ray Kennedy because, you know, Steve Earle's partner in the Twang Trust. And if you want uh, kind of organic recording, um, uh, valve as opposed to digital and old star microphones and reel-to-reel -reel machines, analog in other words, then he's your man. Yeah. So Jesse organized to do some recording with Ray in Nashville. And just by coincidence, it exactly coincided with me being out there for the CMA Awards. 
So I was able to go to Ray's and see Jesse over there. And I mean, Ray was just going, oh my God, this, the talent of this girl is unbelievable. So it was a really w wonderful kind of really wrapped around full circle thing that we had. I just absolutely loved it. But talking about full circle, isn't it interesting that you talked about at the beginning of your career, you had mentors, people like John Peel and people who really helped you get in the door and facil facilitators, if that's the right word. But now you're the one who's doing that for other people, people in the music industry and, and, and loads of people that you've met and all these country stars. Isn't it interesting how it's come full circle? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I hadn't sort of necessarily really looked at it that way before. But there's, there, I don't know, is it a rite of passage thing? I'm not quite sure. I mean... I, I'm certainly in a, a position now where I can help mm. young artists and they're the future, let's face it. I think all different genres have got their traditionists, um, people who want to protect the genre from, from, from present day influences. You know, you get it in folk and blues and you certainly get it in country. You know, there are a lot of fans, usually the older fans who don't like the idea of country being pulled anywhere, say, for example, towards pop. Mm. Um, but where we are now with, with artists like Dan and Shay and Kane Brown and people, that, you know, the, Casey Musgraves, they're bringing a new, brand new generation into this music. And the 20-year-old is the future, not the 60-year-old. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. Mm. So I, I encourage, and we've got a completely open door to, to young artists that are bringing maybe sometimes a different take on, on country. But I also say to the traditionists, you know, that there was a big uh, reaction in the late 50s, early 60s um, against the sort of brashness of rockabilly music. They made country very pop. Chet Atkins, you know, was producing Patsy Cline and Jim Reeves and people, and they were pop records. The traditionists now point to those records as being what country is all about. And I say to them, but they were pop records. You know, the traditionists of those that day were saying, we can't have country going in that direction. It's too pop. So where have we heard this before? Yeah, Do you know what yeah. I mean? You've got to keep You've moving. got to have an open mind. Yeah. And I think that possibly if I were to pin, you were talking about enthusiasm that keeps you going for... I think maybe the other most important aspect of what I brought to what I do is an open mind. Honestly, I think without that, if I had an attitude like the, the, the old crusty country traditionists, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be here doing this now. And embracing all new technology. You've told me to go on Instagram, yeah. even though I'm not. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you were on your phone earlier. It's, 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 it's getting the message out there it in is. new ways as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if we look back, I mean... We, we can't do the whole career because we haven't got time. But all those pivotal moments. I mean, we've talked about people who were very influential to you. And uh, like you say, it's it's having the right attitude there as well and just loving what you do. Absolutely. And it is that, you know, I'm blessed with an open mind. I'm so glad because then you're you don't have um, barriers against certain things at all. Actually, you know, you, you just so that's it. I think that has helped me so much that the sense of excitement I feel revolves around the new CDs that have just poked their way through the letterbox this morning and landed on the on the mat. That's the future. Mm. Those new records are the future. The band that is going to be in here in about 10 or 15 minutes, you know, 
that's the future yeah. and the band that's coming later on this afternoon we do about three or four sessions a week in the studio here and you know some of the people that we've discovered the shire well, not discovered but you know came here very very early in their careers you know the shires ward thomas wandering hearts foreign affairs robert vincent you know these are names now that that uh wildwood kin that are curse of low no <laughs> these are the ones that are on tour filling halls now and they yeah. started here yeah. and that you know that gives me an incredible i'm very proud of that you know well, it's fantastic to hear the, what, where you've been what you've done and the incredible people you've met and and spoken to and I guess anyone listening who wants to sort of get into this old broadcasting lark it's it's like you said open mind um passion loving every minute of it and being yourself yeah As everybody says this to new aspiring broadcasters but it is absolutely true be yourself just be yourself uh, because there's only one of you I mean I started being pretty much a clone of John Peel um, which at the time was helpful. But once I got on to Whistle Test and then the, I, I, where I wanted to be and, and where I'm pleased I am in a way is that when you hear me on air, what you're hearing is what I am, it, it, you know, if that makes sense. There's not, I don't sort of go on air and suddenly go, hi, it's Bob, you know, and, and adopt an entirely different persona that, that used to be the case with DJs in the, in the past. I've always thought that the, the most the way I'm personally most comfortable is to be myself on air just talk about the music ex explain I'm, I'm a page turner you know I'm giving you lots of information about this particular track then I turn the page to the next track try and give as much information and context to that track as I can you know and and that's it I'm just sitting there chatting and playing music and then when the phone rings at the end of the show and it's the boss saying <laughs> you, you start dancing around the studio yeah. hey! Chiboy, yes <laughs> Thank you. And so what's next? I mean, what is there anything else you really want to achieve? CBE, Sir Bob, soon, surely. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, um, Wild Rose has given me a little bit of a taste for films. And my son, Dylan, Miles's brother, Dylan, Dylan is A&R now at Peer Music in, in London. He's head of A&R there. And he and I have talked quite a bit about music supervision in films, choosing music for certain scenes in films. Mm. I would love to do that. And we've been reaching out to a few people in London to start that process going. It's quite a tough nut to crack. I'm already discovering. It's not a thought where you think, uh, oh, you know, I could do the music for that ad. When are they going to call me? It really isn't working out like that at all. <laughs> but um, that's where I want to go yeah, yeah. now. I, I think being able to do that would be amazing. I still have an energy for country, although, I, I mean, broadcasting the country show, I mean, not, not country music. But you know, I've got to be realistic. I'm 74 next year and... There's quite a few people now waiting in the wings. When you can even turn the clock back only five or six years and the lane that I was standing in was empty, apart from one or two, you know, Danny Baker is also always a big country. One or two others played a bit of country on their shows. Adrian Just, actually, was at Radio Oxford for a while, liked country music. But effectively, that lane was empty. Mm. It's now absolutely packed. It's your fault. You've made it too popular. I know. So there's a friend of mine called Balen Leonard. Um, I'm a massive fan of Balen's. And he, even country music people, speculated that he's my natural successor. And I hope that's true. I would love Balen to, to move into my 
program as and when it comes to an end, which, yeah, I say it's not going to be forever. And I, I'm blessed with good health at the moment. And that's not a guarantee, not, not when you're 73. So the next 12 months I'm going to assess, we come to this time next year, that will be my 50th anniversary wow. in, in broadcasting. Uh, August 1970 I started. So we'll be August 2020, which seems a good point to stop and take stock. So that's what I'm going to do and then decide from there. I think probably you love it so much. We, we really hope that you just keep talking to us on the radio because it's so lovely to hear your passion <laughs> and, and all the lovely music. It's been fabulous talking to you, Bob. Thank you Thank so you, much. Ali. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, hope you enjoyed listening to Bob and all his stories and thanks to him for giving up his uh, time to talk to me. If this is your first listen to Where Did It All Go Right, there are stacks of other episodes to listen to. We've got actors, presenters, sound engineers, bloggers, all sorts. They're all there waiting for you. You know, you could subscribe and then they'll just turn up on your phone every Sunday and then you don't have to think about it. And if you could rate us on iTunes, that would be fantastic as well. Producer Megan is back from South America without the stallions, without the mosquito bites. So thank you so much to her uh, for producing this week's episode in a bit of a jet lag state. We'll see you next week.